This is episode 232 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is brought to you by listeners just like you who joined our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Paul Edmondson, Head of Research for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and co-editor with Stanley Wells of the Shakespeare Circle, an alternative biography. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The most spectacular and, for anyone with vertigo, the most terrifying thing you're going to see in Shakespeare's day is something called a flyer. And this is somebody who ties a rope to the top of a tower and fastens it in the middle of a square, takes a wooden board with a rope-shaped groove in it, straps themselves to that board and to the rope, straps fireworks to their arms very often, and then slides headfirst down the rope. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's play titled Love's Labor's Lost, he writes about a tumbler wearing colors in their hoop. This reference is to a specific act of theater performance called tumbling. If you've already studied the all-male stage, you may know that Shakespeare had all-male performances at his theater, and you may be tempted to think that tumblers were men. However, as the research of the project Engendering the Stage aims to bring to light, historical records for Shakespeare's lifetime show that in terms of the theater industry as a whole for the late 16th and early 17th century, theater performance was far from all male. In fact, women were not only prominent players in public performance, but they weren't entirely excluded on the basis of religion and morality either, because we have records of distinguished women from one of the strictest religious sects in England, the Puritans, acting on stage in full costume. To help us unpack this conundrum and explore this world of the traveling street performers where elaborate and complicated feats of acrobatics, tightrope walking, tumbling, and even trapeze acts would have taken place using women at center stage, we welcome author of Women on the Renaissance Stage and contributor to Engendering the Stage Project, Professor Claire McManus. Claire McManus is Professor of Early Modern Literature and Theater at the University of Roehampton. She publishes widely on Shakespearean women's performance, and her books include Women on the Renaissance Stage and Women and Culture at the Courts of the Stuart Queens. She is an editor of Shakespeare, Fletcher, Shirley, and Marston, and she collaborates with two international research groups, Theater Without Borders, which investigates transnational early modern theater, and Engendering the Stage, which uses archival and performance research to investigate the gendering of early modern performance, focusing on girls, women, and gender nonconforming performers. Claire is currently completing a book on the way that popular women's performance, such as rope dancing, shapes the way femininity is acted on the Shakespearean stage. 
Hello, Claire. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Thanks so much for having me. In addition to acrobats and tumblers, what other kinds of daring spectacles would we expect to see in a street performance? You would see, if you were wandering around any early modern town, any early modern city in Shakespeare's time, you were very likely to come across all kinds of spectacular performance. There's a really rich set of visual images, so pictures and engravings and woodcuts of all the different kinds of tumbling and rope dancing that happened. And by rope dancing, I really mean what we would think of now as tightrope walking or wire walking. So ropes high in the sky with people doing astonishingly frightening things on top of them. Probably the the most spectacular and for anyone with vertigo, the most terrifying thing you're going to see in Shakespeare's day is something called a flyer. And this is somebody who ties a rope to the top of a tower and fastens it in the middle of a square, takes a wooden board with a rope-shaped groove in it, straps themselves to that board and to the rope, straps fireworks to their arms very often, and then slides headfirst down the rope, ending up, for example, there's a flyer in the entry for Edward VI, and the flyer zooms down the rope and it ends up headfirst at the feet of the of the boy king as he comes into the square. And there's another one for the entry of uh, Queen Mary and Philip of Spain a little later on. And that really poignantly, the next bit in the record says, of course he died. <laughs> <laughs> there are just, you know, there's a terrible amount. There's a huge body count with this kind of performance. I think the most spectacular one is there's um, a, an amazing researcher called M.A. Katritsky who knows everything about European performance and found this incredible record of a, a surgeon in his 70s called Charles Bernouin, who also is a flyer. And he tumbles to his death because, so he's up there, he's ready to go, he's got the fireworks on, but only the fireworks on one arm light. So he's completely unbalanced and he just falls to his death in front of hundreds of horrified spectators. So very spectacular, incredibly risky and quite the way to make a living, basically. I think we have to take these people seriously because they genuinely put their lives on the line to perform. So, And we were worried about our children growing up to be cowboys. We should have been worried about them growing up to be flyers. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> would these collections of acrobats and tumblers, would they be organized into companies like we think of with the Lord Strange's men or the King's men, for example? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think it tells us something that we haven't necessarily thought enough about when it comes to early modern or Shakespearean performance, performance in Shakespeare's day. So we know that there are companies of, of these rope dancers and tumblers, contortionists who are organized by family grouping. So they're organized by blood, by kinship. And there's a very famous example of a kind of multi-generational troop of rope dancers and tumblers organized around the Peedle family. So the main kind of figure in that is a man called William Peedle. Of course, confusingly, there's a father, William Peedle, there's a son, William Peedle. So senior and junior, it all gets quite confusing in the records. But they run this really 
quite celebrated famous company for about 30 years from about the 1590s through to the 1630s. That's 40 years, in fact, she says, correcting her sums quickly. And at one point, they're run by a woman. We have a license from 1631, which names the wife of the junior William Peedle, a woman called Cicely Peedle, as the troop leader. And her son, Thomas, is in the group, along with another named performer, and they are dancing on the ropes, they're tumbling, they're mauling, which is a kind of wrestling or fighting practice. And she's leading them, and we have this license for them to perform in London. The really exciting thing about them is that they don't only perform in and around London, and we know they play at court, so they play for the King and Queen, James the Sixth and First, and Anna of Denmark, who are so often figured as, you know, terribly elite and terribly learned, but clearly get a kick out of watching the pedals perform on the ropes. They also have a base in the Netherlands in Flushing across the channel. And we've got records of them performing in Brandenburg, in Leiden. So they are international, multi-generational. They move around the country. They move between countries. And then you also have this woman who for a short time, at least in the 1630s, is their troop leader. And it's very likely that she is a rope dancer as well. So she's also mobile in all kinds of interesting ways that involve women being strong and dynamic and flexible and bendy and powerful in ways that we often don't think of Shakespearean women as being. We often think of them as being so, so static and so contained by their costumes, but not when you're rope dancing. Core strengths is the key, I think. <laughs> to to walk on a tightrope or to perform these feats of, of acrobatics, it, as you say, it would take a tremendous amount of strength. And I would think you'd have to practice to get it right in a live performance. What do we know about where and how these performers were training for these feats? That is such a good question. We don't know enough, but we're starting, I think, to get a sense of what was going on. Mainly, again, often, very often from the visual images. So we know that there were a lot of child um, performers and that could be open to abuse or it could be a kind of more protective family environment. So, but it's clear that you start to learn quite early. There's records of performance in Bristol of a girl of nine, um, nine, I believe, and 14. Actually, they're younger. One maid of 15 years and another girl of four years of age performing on the ropes so you must have to start this very early and there are images of of really small children tumbling while adults play play the violin or you know playing music for them and then they crop up in um, books about education didactic books books that teach you how your body should be so the really famous kind of education manual from the 17th century is written by someone called Comenius and he publishes this book in the middle of the 17th century. And in there is an image of what he calls the gymnasium. It has people squeezing the very small people squeezing the ball and also a rope. And on the rope, we have a small boy dangling by one foot, terrifyingly. And on the same rope at the same time, a girl in a, you know, in a corset and a farthingale and a long skirt walking along. So, I suspect that that these performers started practicing and training and learning from older performers really early in their lives. And then we've got 
there's an amazing record from, again, the middle of the 17th century. So this is a while after Shakespeare has died. But I think that it's a survivor that tells us more about what was happening around the time when Shakespeare was performing. And this is really interesting because it's a performer of colour who is called a Turk. We don't know if he was a Turk. Turk is such a baggy, huge word at the time. It could mean somebody from, you know, so many different geographical places that the easiest thing would be to point at someone who doesn't look like you and call them a Turk. But his name ends up in the predecessor of newspapers, so newsletters in the 1650s. And he's celebrated for the amazing performances that he does in the Red Bull, so in a London theatre, high above the stage. And he's there's a an anecdote in which a woman says, comes out with a with a with a racist commonplace and compares this black performer to the devil. Now this happens all the time in the early modern period, that racist association between blackness and devilry. But then in the newspaper report it gets punctured because Another woman turns around and says, no, I know him. I know him. I know his mother. He's from the Blackfriars. So he's from London. And she tells us that he learned his art when he was a sea boy. So when he was a young sailor. So he learned it partly from skill as a sailor, working on the ropes, working on the rigging. And then she says he also was taught by a jack pudding. He learned more tricks from a jack pudding. And a jack pudding is a clown. So it seems to be this combination of physical ability and skill on the ropes that that is shared with people who work at sea and people who work in playhouses. And then more tricks, learning more tricks from clowning, from physical performance and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we need to know more about this. We don't know enough at the moment. Did any of these acrobatic and aerial performers come to theaters like the globe i know you mentioned that they were in london and at the red bull but what about places like the globe or the theater or the curtain do we have any records of them being at places like that yeah i mean most of the time they will be playing in fairs or in other kinds of spaces sometimes in inn yards sometimes in the streets sometimes in squares There's a huge cluster of rope dancers and tumblers who perform in Southwark Fair and Bartholomew Fair. But we also have records of them performing inside the playhouses. Yeah. So in 1600, when Hamlet's being written, we know that there's a French tumbler, uh, someone called Peter Bromville, who's dancing in the swan. And we also know that the Fortune Playhouse, the second Fortune Playhouse after the first one, (laughs) gets destroyed we know that there are rope dancers there and we also know in Bristol there is um, a place called the Rose Inn in Wine Street in Bristol which is really interestingly very close to a playhouse which a scholar called Callan Davies reminds us is owned by a woman a woman called Margaret Wolfe so you have this kind of almost like this complex of in-yard performance space and and a playhouse. And in the in-yard performance space, that's where you find these two girls, this girl of 15 and this girl of four, dancing on the low rope and turning on the stage. And they do all kinds of things, like they thread they thread um, needles. 
they thread four score needles and they vault and they tumble and they make eggs dance on a staff, which is something I would quite like to see. I think that these performers are pretty much everywhere. And I think that if you went to see a Shakespeare play or a play by somebody written at Shakespeare's time, I think you would also see children and women performing these amazing acts of physical ability and artistry on the ropes or on the stage or by doing um, what's called leisure demand, which is sort of sleight of hand, closer work that you need, that you would draw your audience into. So what I'm thinking is what difference does it make to somebody who sees this regularly and sees it inside the playhouses, then to go and see Hamlet or Othello or The Revenger's Tragedy or The Winter's Tale, where you have not only boys playing women, but boys playing women in this really static, self-contained way that seems so different from these bouncing, tumbling women elsewhere. So I think we can we can think again about what we know about Shakespeare by thinking about what that audience would would have seen every single day. I've read about something called spinning and something called a lounge that women would do in performance that involved a great deal of physical ability and agility to accomplish. Will you tell us about how this worked and what it would involve? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and again, I need to say that I am talking about something I could never physically do. So I just think it's important to admit that. So you have two different kinds of rope. You have the tight, the tight rope, which is what it says it is, and you can walk and run and leap along that. And then you have this thing called the slack rope, which is much more, I think, what we would think of almost as a trapeze. So it, you know, it bows in the middle and the performer is usually in the middle at the lowest point. And you can spin around that as you would with a trapeze. Or you find, again, these brilliant images of performers lounging on the rope. So it's as if they make it kind of an impossible image of relaxation and leisure, but they are high above the stage and they have only a rope to lounge on. So they're they're effectively lying on it. But my question after that is, well, what do you do once you need to get up? Because (laughs) that's a whole other thing. We've got a description in a... really a fictional account of London at the turn of the 17th and 18th century, which tells us quite a bit about what performance did. So, and this is a booth performance at Southwark Fair. And again, fascinatingly, it's a black performer. It's a black woman this time. And it's a book called The London Spy by Edward Ward. And he describes, or his narrator describes, watching this black woman playing at swing swang with a rope, so swinging to and throw, spinning, as you were saying, hanging sometimes by a hand, sometimes by a foot, by a leg, and sometimes by her toes, so that I found let her do what she would, providence or destiny would by no means suffer the rope to part with her. So it's this kind of amazing, impossible thing that the only thing that could ever get rid of this woman from the rope is is God, basically. (laughs) She's that good. Claire's research points out that with street performances, court masks, and other places where you'd expect to see acrobatic theatrical performances, it wasn't just women, but 
children who are participating in these things like trapeze acts. Claire, tell us about court masks specifically, and were these feats performed there the same or different than what we'd expect to see in these street performances? Yeah, thank you. Court masks, I think, are really quite different than the popular performance that we find in the streets and the inn yards and the alehouses and the squares. What you get in court masks are elite royal courtly women performing silently. And this is the thing that allows them to perform the, the mask form as a genre works really hard to say These are elite women and these over here, these speaking people, are professional players. Women perform silently in the court masks and this is because the, as a performance form, it needs to make a real distinction between the elite, the royal women who are performing and everybody else. So anybody with a speaking part in a mask up to about 16, 17 is male is and is professional. So it's speech that makes the difference. If you stay silent, you're, you're safe. Your reputation is safe as a performing woman. And the court mask is an incredible show. It's got the first proscenium scene, you know, um, stage in England. It's got perspective scenery, which is this incredible technology that's been brought over from Italy at huge expense. And it uses the vertical. You'll find these royal women, these courtly women, descending on cloud machines from up in the rafters of the banqueting house where these performances took place. But what we don't find is any rope dancing, certainly not in the time when Shakespeare's alive. And that vertical, that up and down access is saved for royalty who are playing the role of gods or deities. So it's for gods, courtiers and royalty. So popular performance isn't allowed in in that way, because in the mask, that upper realm is saved for the people they want to flatter. It's saved for the rich, the famous, the celebrated, the people in power. So what you find in the mask is much more tumbling than rope dancing. Yeah. So I think there's a real difference between what we find inside that world of the court and what we find outside in the street. And I think it's I think it's a class thing. Claire's work points out that women and even in some cases, Puritan women were an established part of performances, including, as she's just shown, the court masks. But Claire, what has your work shown about the concept of an all male performance company? Was this new format contrary to the established industry standards up to that point? And was Shakespeare part of a driving force behind bringing the all male stage to England as a theater standard? That's such a good question. I think I think Shakespeare's coming into a theatre world that is already h- hiving off men and women because it feels to me, from all the work that I've done, that women are performing everywhere but <laughs> everywhere but those commercial stages in scripted drama. And even then, you know, there are some really fascinating figures who sort of push at the edges of that. And I'm absolutely not saying that women were banned for performance. We know there was no ban. This is to do with custom and it's to do with decorum and, you know, women who who we always have to watch our reputation and the sense that to perform publicly was to to be a public or common woman. But I I don't think Shakespeare innovates in the sense of the personnel. I I think Shakespeare innovates in doing 
amazing things with that personnel that other people haven't thought of doing before. But women are everywhere else. We, and that's why I keep thinking, well, okay, if you're if you're walking down the street and thinking, I'll go to the bear baiting or I'll go to the rope dancing or I'll go and see this new play called Hamlet, you're bringing to all of those an awareness, awareness of each of the other. So, you know, exit pursued by a bear has real power. <laughs> that famous stage direction from the Winter's Tale has real power because you've seen bears. And watching watching boy actors being very static and passive and being not really moving and being very much about speaking, I think you're going to compare that with the women that you've just seen swinging upside down from ropes or dancing high in the sky above you. And it's fascinating to think about what women wore when they did that as well and what a, spe- you know, what a spectator would take from that. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I think it does. But what I'm also wondering about is what exactly what you mentioned of it being, you know, culture and custom that sort of dictated that women avoid commercial playhouses. I think when we study Shakespeare's lifetime, one of the driving forces behind that overreaching custom is the large Puritan presence that was in London at this time, sort of creating a a strong disdain for playing in general, but definitely for women being involved in playing. And I wondered if you could tell us how the story of Lucy Harrington Russell conflicts with what we think we know about the Puritan perspective um, on women in performance. Yeah. I mean, Lucy Harrington Russell, who is the Countess of Bedford um, and is kind of operating the late 16th, early 17th century. Um, I mean, she's a complete hero, basically. She is a very devoted, very devout Puritan woman. She's also an immensely capable courtier who is very close to the Queen, very close to Anna of Denmark. And Anna of Denmark herself is one of the most important female performers of the 17th century, certainly in in England. Lucy Harrington-Russell is the dedicatee of poems by Ben Johnson and of really important works on language by John Florio, who is a translator and who writes dictionaries and dedicates them to elite women, uh, which I just think is a brilliant thing to do anyway. She patronises poets, dramatists and artists, and we know that we don't have it. We know she wrote poetry herself. So she's a devoted woman who doesn't believe what the anti-theatricalists, the the criticisers of theatre say when they connect performance to this whorishness. So I would point you to a performance in 1609, Christmas 1609, called The Mask of Queens, which Ben Johnson and Inigo Jones write for Queen Anna. And Anna, of course, is the best queen of them all. So she takes centre stage and is in this incredible costume. But I think she's kind of upstaged by Lucy Harrington-Russell because Lucy Harrington-Russell plays Penthesilea, who is an Amazon queen. So we have a design from Inigo Jones where she's wearing a breastplate, which may or may not be see-through. So we may actually be able to see her body. She's wearing a helmet with a huge plumed feather on it. And she's wearing a sword and she's wearing buskins, which are these um, boots that are associated with Amazons. So we can see parts of her body that you don't normally see 
<laughs> with an early modern woman, you can see her arms, you can probably see her breasts, and you can certainly see her feet and her ankles. And I think this says everything about that contradiction between our idea of Puritans as sober and as really opposed to anything to do with the theatre industry, to do with entertainment. And then this really devout and educated woman who is not only content to perform like that, but must have pushed to perform like that because we know that Jones gave the costume designs to the performers so that they could make changes. And that's the design that we have. So it's quite possible that this, you know, very sober, very devout woman is performing in what we would think of as kind of shockingly revealing costume as part of the court's performance. But being part of that performance is so important to be a courtier, to have power, to have royal favour, that it overcomes absolutely anything else. And there's a brilliant book by Joanna Harrison and Elizabeth Scott Bauman called The Intellectual Culture of Puritan Women. And it uses that design on the cover and it completely blows up any idea, you know, any kind of assumptions that we might have about what a Puritan intellectual woman would be like. And I, I yeah, I think Lucy Harrington Russell would be amazing to hang out with, frankly. Well, I'm I'm with you. I think I would love to talk with her. <laughs> now, I know that we would love to definitely learn more about not only Lucy Harrington Russell, but to explore the history of tumbling and rope walking and all of this that you've shared with us today. What are some of your favorite resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Yes. So I'm going to give a big shout out to the work of James Stokes, who is an incredible archival scholar who has scoured the archives across the country to find records of this kind of performance and of women performing and tumbling and rope dancing and many, many more things. I would, um, I'm part of a project called Engendering the Stage, which is based between the UK and Canada. Um, We have a website, which we have blog posts and videos and information on there. I would just give a shout out to the team and in particular, our Canadian colleagues, Melinda Goff and Peter Cockett from McMaster University. Lucy Munro's work on children's performance and the King's Men is amazing. Erica Lynn, Erica T. Lynn, her book on acrobatics and performances around plays, I think is amazing. And likewise, the work of Evelyn Tribble, Evelyn B. Tribble. I'd also send you to Pam Pamela Allen Brown's book, The Diva's Gift to the Shakespearean Stage, a really important book by Natasha Calder, who shows us that women are not only performing in and around the playhouse, but also working in the playhouse. And a really lovely book that's just brand new, just out this week by Callan Davies called What is a Playhouse, which thinks about all the kind of the traffic and the commerce and the people going in and out of these spaces and what they do and who they were. So that's a lovely book for everybody to buy and read. (laughs) We will place links to all of these resources in the show notes for today. And yes, I will echo engendering the stage is a wonderful place to start and just a great resource to check out, but we'll link to the books directly as well as the work of these scholars that Claire shared in the show notes. So make sure you stop by there to find uh, the complete list there that you can explore. Now, Claire, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, this is so difficult because I really, really want the works of John Fletcher, who 
as you know, collaborated with Shakespeare towards the end of his career and, and writes these incredible, hilariously funny plays that are really interested in women who think and who feel much more than Shakespeare. But at the same time, the, the, the book that I really cannot live without, and I bet somebody else has already picked this, is Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Trilogy. And I'd like the whole run where later in life she goes back and she rewrites or she adds additional volumes to it from a feminist perspective. So it's this, all the books are beautiful, but you also get this sense of her learning and her changing her mind throughout her life. And I really like the idea that an author can say, no, no, we're not leaving it there. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like an excellent choice for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, the first thing to do is finish my book on women's rope dancing and the difference it makes to how we understand Shakespeare's female characters and their femininity on stage. So I'll be really happy when that's when that's written. And then I'm getting back to teaching at the University of Roehampton and sharing this work with, with students. And then with uh, Lucy Monroe, who also works on the Engendering Stage project, we are planning to edit the complete works of John Fletcher. So this is a vast thing that will, you know, I mean, he's involved in 50 plus plays. So this is huge. So we're taking it step by step, but it's a really exciting uh, thing to do. And I would just give a shout out to the actors that we worked on, on this project with at Shakespeare's Globe, because we're incredibly grateful for the expertise that they shared with us there. Absolutely. Well, that's exciting stuff. We'll look forward to all that is yet to come from Claire McManus. Thank you so much for being here with us this week to take us through the history of acrobats, tumblers, and women in performance for Shakespeare's Lifetime. This has been an exciting conversation, and I thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you, Cassidy. Thanks so much. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and rating on the platform that you're listening from today. If you'd like to see pictures of the acrobats, tumblers, and tightrope walkers from Shakespeare's Lifetime, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you can see more visual content that coordinates with the acrobatic history you're learning about today, along with more information about our guest, Claire McManus, engendering the stage, and places you can explore the history of women in performance further. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 232. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP232. If you enjoy learning about Shakespeare history here with us each week and consider yourself a loyal podcast listener, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. You can support the show and access bonus content only available inside our patrons area, including video versions of the podcast, three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are special patron extras like digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club available at the higher tiers. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. 
As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into that Shakespeare life.